Oh, I don't know how that sits with you, but when I hear that, I get so encouraged. A worship is celebrating this good news, and Jesus, Jesus is a man of his word. And when we talk about the gospel, do you believe who you are and who he said you are? Because the world has a different message, and the world helps us to, 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 to live with like our failures and our shortcomings as, as our name. And that's not who God sees us or says that we are. Do you believe that you're the sum of your regrets, your success, your shortcomings, your imperfections or achievements? Corporate worship is a chance to be reminded of who we are in light of who God is. And, and when Jesus lives inside of us, I watched that a bunch of times this week. And uh, that was just an encouraging thing. I thought that was a great place for us to start today. And so uh, if you would just um, uh, join with me in, in a time of prayer together, I'm going to unmute us. Uh, uh, and so we can just join together in this simple prayer. And if you would just follow along uh, with me. Uh, <clears throat> and so, Lord, let's just pray together. In the promise of your presence. Hold us, God. In our longing for something better. Lord, have mercy. In our need to see you revealed in our world. Direct us through your spirit. In the silence of memories that haunt us. Lord, us. In the hunger for justice that aches in our heart. Feed us. And in the yearning for love in each of our days. Reassure us with your love. In the setting out of truth. Guide us, Lord. In the call for peace in our conflicted world. Lord, hear us. And in the search for healing in our broken world. Find us. And in our gathering to worship you. You're with us. And in our community of faith. Reveal yourself. We pray. Amen. Thanks for doing that. Thanks for sharing in that with me. Um, I want to just uh, kind of reset something. At the beginning of February, we had uh, a, an amazing event called The Pitch. And I set the tone for what I wanted to communicate that night by telling a story. And if you would just allow me, I know many of you were there, but it was a story of an eruption, the largest eruption that's ever occurred out of a volcano. And it was 1873, the, uh, the volcano or the island known as Krakatoa just off the Indonesian coast. Um, it was the largest uh, volcanic eruption, and it was said to have shot 15 miles in the air and heard from 3,000 miles away, as far away as Hawaii. And even though the, the island was uninhabited, it, was, it killed an estimated 36,000 people. Um, because the explosion created such a tidal wave, such a, a kind of shift in tsunamis that, that it was just uh, hurting all these other um, <clears throat> neighboring shores. Now, what the explosion did was it eradicated all life, all organic life. Again, uninhabited, but when they visited after it had cooled down, all you found was ash and rock. And three years later, a group of botanists on a boat returned to discover something they were actually surprised. From what was completely desolate, 
they now found life forms. They found algae. They found 11 different kinds of fern. They found two different kinds of grass. And what they realized was that seeds had scattered via the trade winds, via the surf or animal droppings. And then if you fast forward 50 years, and if you go online today, you can see it's a lush island with like 171 different kinds of species of plant life. And my point is this, just because we can't see results, just because we can't see life, just because we can't see growth, doesn't mean there's not anything actually happening. We are a culture in love with results. We are a culture in love with deliverables and speed and power and efficiency. But just because we can't see it doesn't mean that God isn't at work. And what I would like to suggest to you is this time of quarantine is a time of germination. We can actually come back stronger spiritually, not just our economy. And the most important thing for each of us during this, each one of us during this quarantine is figuring out how we can actually spiritually come back stronger. And I think the gospel represents the seed that when it's planted and when it's nurtured and when it's pruned can mean fruitful living. And the gospel news is that all things that bind us, that enslave us, and can destroy our lives are overcome by the seeds of the gospel at work within us. Salvation of any kind will always feel like an interruption. Think about that. I don't know if you grew up with the gospel as part of your norm, but when we experience an encounter with God in a salvation kind of way, it will usually feel like a huge interruption. Now, salvation of any kind will feel like an interruption. Whether you're being saved from codependency whether you're being saved from materialism, addiction, or drowning, it will feel like an interruption. And so when we choose to believe and live our lives in light of who Christ is, it often creates a disorder to the familiar and the ordered life that we've come to understand. And yet our coping strategies and self-reliant need saving. This is so that we can begin to reorder our life in Christ, regardless of the situation or the circumstances. That's why that song at the beginning was so powerful. You said it, we believe it. I am who you say I am, not who the world says I am. So I want to do this. I want to look at these kind of story-oriented approach to how the gospel impacts not just people's lives, but communities. The gospel is powerful when it grips the heart of an individual. I've seen that. In some cases, I've experienced that. But it becomes transformational when a community embraces a whole new way of living and being and doing. Largely because we're never supposed to live in isolation and with broken relationships, except that's kind of our normal, is it not? And within many churches, it's entirely too easy to spiritually hide in a crowd and miss out on relationships, miss out on involvement. And in this story I want to share with you out of Acts chapter 4 that you might want to turn to in your Bibles rather than going back and forth in the screen. I just want to kind of read it for you, but you might want to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. But here, 
The gospel is exploding and it's exploding within communities of faith, but it met resistance because they were preaching new life, resurrection. They were practicing hospitality. They were praying for healing. They were living generously. And shortly thereafter, a persecution broke out, which doesn't make worldly sense unless people were actually being threatened by it, which they were. So in Acts chapter 4, this is what we see. This is the ideal of what God intended his church to be from the very beginning. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. This sounds like such a radical counterculture that it's even hard to relate to, but I would contend that this is actually the picture of what the church was supposed to be from the beginning. Now, Within a couple of chapters, there's full-scale persecution because the positions of power and privileges were at stake. And in this scene, just when the religious leaders thought they had doused the embers of the Jesus movement, Peter and John rise up and they got in trouble for preaching the resurrection. So Jesus had just come along and they were so threatened because of the economic um, cost it would be to the religious leadership and the privileged that they finally eliminated him. Except just when they thought they doused it, his disciples, the apostles, are rising up, the community of faith. And so they tried to like bring him before the courts, and they're like, hey, we can't have you doing this. This is causing a scene. And he's like, well, uh, we can't not not share. We can't be silent anymore. They're like, no, seriously, you should quit it. We're like, what are you gonna do, put us in prison? And the followers of Christ were sharing the good news and they were being healed and people were turning. Numbers were growing exponentially. So they arrested him for no reason. But again, they couldn't be silent. And so the momentum created such an overwhelming surge in generosity and compassion. Now, if you've ever wondered what difference church can make, I would say this. The gospel helps us see that the sum of our parts is greater than individual success. Can I just say that one more time? When the gospel penetrates not just my heart, but our lives collectively, it helps us see that the sum of our parts, your resources, your talents, your gifts, your experiences, your testimony of healing is greater than our individual success. The Hebrews always thought about faith as a communal expression. It was common. It was shared. We were always God's people as much as you are God's child. And like any family household where children are present, we make room for differences. We learn in family systems to make amends, to serve one another, how to share 
which can be highly developmental for any personal spiritual formation. This is what the church was supposed to help facilitate in our lives. And in the book of Acts, it caught on like wildfire. See, biblical community like this helps us from the very natural tendency, like gravity, to live as the center of our own lives. And the power of the gospel is when we're able to see it, it's not just about me or my family or my needs. The power of the gospel, when we're able to see it, it goes that we're in fact better together. I'm better when committed to us. The gospel confronts my own self-interest. The gospel confronts my, my desires for independence and autonomy and says that individual autonomy is a shaky foundation at best. So I wanted to do a little research on where else, because if you've grown up in churches, you see churches divide over some of the most trivial things. You see churches tend to spend money on themselves. You see, you don't see the kind of movement. And so there was a movement in the 1700s. There was an aristocrat by the name of um, um, Ludwig Nicholas Zinzendorf. He was a count in what is now modern-day East Germany in the, in the early 1700s. He was born an aristocrat, but as a young person began to dream that God could once again act as he did in the book of Acts, that he would create a revival, a movement of God, and something that was actually transformational. Now, as a nobleman, society, including the king of the Holy Roman Empire of Germany, which is what it was called at the time, wanted him to be a diplomat, that he had some social obligation, which he did, but his dream was always about this very pure form of Christianity, like we just read about in Acts chapter 4. But here's the thing. One day, a mass of Bohemian refugees fled persecution in Moravia, which was now modern day the Czech Republic. And they landed on the shores of Germany and requested refuge because he had this large estate. And rather than being bothered by all these immigrants coming ashore, he sees how people are now an answer to an important question, important prayer that he's had for years. How could he steward his Christian faith that others would see the care of God? So he gives them land and they begin to build a vital Christian community. Meanwhile, Zinzendorf was operating in this role as a diplomat, but he was trying to organize communities of faith around this kind of heaven on earth experience. One day he goes to a library and, and he discovers a dusty old book and it was written by someone by the name of John Comenius. Now, if you have been trained as a school teacher, you might be familiar with the name Cominius. He was, he's given large credit for being the inventor or the creator of what we know as the children's picture storybook. One of the people behind the Western understanding of education. In fact, a few years ago, Time Magazine called Cominius one of the hundred most influential people in the last thousand years. And Zinzendorf in the 1700s opens this dusty old book and he sees that he has this simple code for discipleship. And it was simply this, be true to Christ, be kind to people, and take the gospel to the nations. 
And what he began to realize that all of these Bohemians that had ended up on his shore had a profound move of the Holy Spirit amongst them in the, like it was in the early church, but a hundred years earlier. This pure form of Christianity had grown to the point of persecution and driven them from their land throughout all of Europe. Zinzendorf discovers the prayer of Comenius as they were being scattered. Remember, we started talking about seeds. Now these seeds had been sown, but a oh, hundred years later, he prayed this prayer, Father, preserve the hidden seeds so that you might glorify your name. A hundred years later in Germany, with Zinzendorf's help, these people took the Holy Spirit principles and asked, what would the kingdom of God look like if we applied it to our own town planning? So they arranged their whole community around what the kingdom of God would look like and the common good. They wanted to equip people for service and leadership, and so they even had young teenage women serving as leaders, which was completely unheard of. They sent more people overseas mission around the world than what had been sent by the entire Western church. They prayed, they served, they spread out, and what some have called one of the purest forms, movements of all church history. Let me just give you one more anecdote. Something staggering happened as they began to meet together in prayer. They started what was called a prayer watch in August of 1727. And all of a sudden, the dramatic move of the Holy Spirit descended upon them. That prayer watch continued day and night for 100 years. This is no joke. This community became a catalyst for renewal and revival that led to the start of radical missional communities all over the world. And within five years of these refugees landing, on, they sent their first missionaries to work among the slaves in the Caribbean, even offering to become slaves themselves if that's what it took to reach them when no one else seemed to care about. How did they do it? How did they recreate the early church experience that they had read about from the book of Acts? Well, they saw their society as a spiritual sort of spiritual knighthood, dedicated not to personal honor or self-advancement, but dedicated to the, to the service in Jesus' name. The church wasn't just a good idea. It wasn't just a place to come and sort of check a box or get our needs met. Faith occupied the center of their lives, their families, their vocations, and their friendships. And they created this covenant community called the Order of the Mustard Seed. You know Jesus telling the parable of the mustard seed? If you have seed as, um, faith as small as a seed, you can move mountains. They took Jesus at his word to be true to Christ, to be kind to people, and to take the gospel to the nations. Friends, we are living in a global society. We don't even have to go to all the nations when the nations are coming to us. We can take this very call that, that just transformed and, and, and birthed the early church. And Mission Hills, we set out at the beginning of this year is to live by a sort of shared covenant so that we wouldn't just be spiritual consumers. We wanted to lay out a plan on how we can live into this similar kind of community, vows to be in community, to live on mission, and to trust God by faith. 
What does it mean for us to love each other and practice the ministry of reconciliation? What does it mean to love those outside of the walls of our homes and our church, to cross social divides? And what does it mean to practice gifts of generosity and, um, and compassion and to trust God by faith, knowing that God produces the harvest, God produces the results? Now, as individuals, these people were all flawed. The early church, the Moravians, but as a biblically functioning Christian community, they experienced the dream that God had all along. The good news, which is what the gospel means, wildly reordered their lives. Their service to others was out of just a love for Christ. Much like I love my children, so I do things in the most selfless way because that's what my children would love. Their concern for each other was because they trusted God to care for them even in adversity. See, forgiveness was because Christ had forgiven them. Adversity and trials were a means to support, to find support within community, not to pull back from it. God was seen in hardship as caring, even grieving, because this was never the world that God had in mind. And so the good news can be really disoriented to our Western values of independence and individualism. But gain at, another, at another's expense was never part of what God intended. God's view of abundance was always, always a matter of stewardship. How we steward our influence is as important as how we steward our resources. This is critical to not only my personal salvation, but also the evidence to the world looking in. This week, I listened to a podcast by a guy who has kind of a global perspective and is meeting with people, doing a lot of Zoom meetings, and he gave a really good, what I would call a pulse, what ha is happening around the world right now. And he, and he made this comparison because he asked the question, what, when does a church, like, what can we do as a church when we're all scattered? Because it feels like we're weakened, except I would like to say we're strengthened. Because we need to be the church whether we're gathered or scattered. And most of the churches that get the attention are the churches that have larger gatherings. But I would contend that the church is you, at home, in your neighborhood, in your community, with your tribe. He said one of the very best outcomes from this is if we can complete the Reformation where the church sees every shareholder as a minister. See, the Reformation was this huge interruption because in the Middle Ages, the church had become so corrupt and they were charging people what they called the indulgences, asking, oh, pay this amount and you can have the forgiveness of sins. It had become a corrupt money-making empire. And, and Martin Luther and John Calvin and others said, this ain't right. And with this prophetic voice stood up and they began to talk about all of us our ministers. All of us with Christ in us can put the divine on display. So when the church is scattered, we have to ask the question, what can I do? When I can't draw a crowd for all of us, what can we do? The priesthood of believers, of which I would like to count you one of, was always supposed to be the response as it was in the early church. How is shelter in place then increasing our concern, our help, our prayers for the needs around you? The church is global, 
but it's increasingly being displayed locally in how we love our neighbors. The church is actually going local, smaller, neighborhood, parish. And this from the beginning, for four years, has been the vision for Mission Hills. Simply loving God, and this is what he said um, that struck me. He said, simply loving God alone is religion. Loving neighbors, that's just socialism. But together, they're the passionate work of the kingdom where we love him and out of that flows to other people. I don't know, I got excited this week when I started going through history and seeing that God has been doing among difficult circumstances through the ages. See, we're actively in prayer looking and asking God about morning worship time or that God would expand our territory as as a church. But if we're really able to see the work of God move, it's going to happen locally where you live, scattered throughout Austin as part of our tribes to own, to share, and to live out these rhythms. See, I'm praying that we would come back stronger. What we find is that it's in these in-between times are not periods of desolation, but of germination. The seeds being spread now, particularly, are looking for fertile soil, for humble hearts, for sacrificial lives, for God to do something next. So with that in mind, I just wanted to have a time of prayer. um, And I would just kind of close this time. And I want to share another document with you. And let's just make this uh, our prayer together as we begin to consider how God would use us during this time. Oops. So sorry, stop sharing. Guys. I'm not finding my prayer. No, that's it. Hopefully. Let me just read it for you, and we'll just make this our meditation as, as, we, uh, as we close. Holy God, you knew us before we took our first breath. You uttered your living word and brought forth light, love, and life. You gathered us from the dust on the earth and called us your people. You sent us into the world to proclaim your mighty and wondrous deeds. You are with us even now as we continue our call. In knowing you, set us free. And merciful God, your love never ends. We confess to you that we do not always share your love as we should. Where you have called us to live as one body, we exist as divided members. Where you have called us to give our spirit-giving gifts, we ignore your call. Where you have called us to forgive, we've forgotten your mercy. By By your your forgiveness, forgiveness, Lord, Lord, set us free. Gracious God, do not be far from us. Strengthen us that we might be givers of your grace, and may your steadfast love be known to all your creation. Give us hearts of courage and songs of your grace to tell others of your faithfulness, presence, and hope. Through your Spirit, set us free.
I just want to lead you now in a time of prayer as you just think about some of your own needs. And I want to encourage you just to sound off maybe in just the privacy of your own home, names, faces, um, needs that come to mind. And if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes with me and just as an act of faith, we want to make our needs known. Faithful God, be with those who are in need of your strength, your encouragement, and your healing. We bring before you the needs of our family, our marriages, our children, and our parents. We bring before you the concerns of friends, friends in need of employment, friends in need of healing, friends in need of comfort, forgiveness. Lord, we bring before you the prodigals. We bring before you the people who are unreconciled to your love, the people who have not come into relationship with you, the people of peace that you have put into our lives to be a demonstration of your care and concern. Lord, we name them now. Lord, in your righteousness, deliver us and set us free. Hear us as we follow you to the day when faith and hope and love will be upon the lips of all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.